All right, Romans 15, 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Good morning. I like how 14 people sprung up to read the scripture. Greg beat them here, but several were on the way. Go ahead. What's that? That's right. You're not, you're not old. Not from my perspective. I'm right on your heels. Um, okay. Uh, so, as Daniel said earlier, this is the third part of a short series from Romans on abounding in hope. And that phrase, abound in hope, comes from Romans 15. Um, we've tried to look at three major texts in Romans where the idea of hope is central. And we've seen that hope is basically the essence of waiting well. Not just waiting like I have to wait because I want something to happen, but it's not happening. I don't have any control over it. Waiting because I'm bored. Waiting in anxiety. Waiting while we wring our hands. Waiting and coming up with a thousand ways to save ourselves. Not that but waiting in confident expectation on God's good promises to come true. And so just real quickly to review, if some of you haven't been here, others will have forgotten. Um, The first one was uh, was from Romans 4 and 5, and we called it the fundamentals of hope. And there in Romans chapter 4 and verses 5, we basically saw that Abraham in his life and some of the decisions he made to trust God uh, against hope, as it were, illustrated kind of the, the elements of what hope looks like in a, in a human, uh, human being's life. Secondly, we looked at the future of hope. And we, we took as our text for that second lesson, last week's lesson, Romans 8, verses 16 through 39, where we looked at not, not just a human being like Abraham or one of God's people or a church of God's people, but creation itself, all of the cosmos, everything that God made and how... Romans 8 says it was groaning uh, as it and we ourselves together wait on the redemption of our bodies, the glory of the children of God. And uh, this is the time when creation was hoping for, waiting expectantly to be liberated from the bondage of decay. Today, we want to talk about a third uh, place in Romans, Romans chapter 15, where uh, Paul presents to us what I'm going to call Uh, for our lesson today, the face of hope. We looked at the fundamentals of hope, the future of hope, and today we want to look at the face of hope. This is also, uh, Romans 15, the place where the title for the series comes from, and that is these these words, abound in hope. So let's look for a few minutes at Romans 15, 8 through 13 this morning, the text that Greg just read for us. And the plan today will be to, to begin with the immediate context that is, the, what Romans 15, uh, 8 through 13 uh, are, are doing in the context, what role they're performing in Paul's letter, in his argument, uh, the, the, the problems that he's addressing in Romans. Then we'll broaden our, our perspective. We'll, we'll sort of zoom out and look at the biblical context, the larger 
context of the story, the narrative you know, story of the Bible, the narrative arc of the Bible, the big picture. Where does this fit in that? And then thirdly, this morning, we'll look at our own context. That is, what does this have to do with the world we live in now, with our lives as individual Christians, as a body, a church family, trying to live out this story? What about our context? What, can we, what are the takeaways that we can take not only from this lesson, but all of these things that Paul has said about waiting well, waiting in confident expectation, waiting in hope uh, for God's good promises to come true. So we'll, t- we'll start with the immediate context. Our paragraph, Romans 15, 8 through 13, is actually part of Paul's discussion of Christians differing over uh, dietary scruples and calendar issues. That, that's where it occurs in the letter, and I think it's much more connected to that than we sometimes have observed. And I'm, and I'm talking about what starts in Romans 14, verse 1. Um, you'll notice in Romans 15, the paragraph that Greg read, the one that we're going to put under the microscope a little bit today, uh, it starts off with these words in verse 8. For I tell you that. All right, if I start off a, a paragraph for, or therefore, or because... What does that tell you to look at? Doesn't it t- isn't it a verbal way of saying, look at what I've said before? Based on that, he, this is the middle of a conversation. He doesn't truncate the earlier idea and then start with something fresh here. This grows out of that. For, I tell you, because of what I've been saying, in connection to that. That's um, a, a pointer for us to look to the paragraphs um, that precede the one we're looking at right now. And indeed, this paragraph that we're looking at, I would say, is a kind of conclusion or climax or a capstone to what he's been saying. Um, and that is what he's been saying in Romans 14.1 through 15.7, the, the several paragraphs before that, all of which have to do with differences in the church at Rome over diet and calendar regulations. Some people there believed that they needed to respect certain dietary scruples, constraints. There were things that they could not eat and drink because of some uh, conviction they had, cultural or theological or probably both in some ways. And, And they thought apparently too that they had to observe certain days in the calendar as special or holy or set apart to God. Others thought that neither one of those things were important. Their theology or their culture or some combination of the two allowed them freedom or latitude in those areas. I don't have to observe those days. And God, everything God made it, it, to eat and drink is good. So I don't have to you know, worry about that. So everybody at the church at Rome, like every other church on the planet throughout history, I'm, I'm here to tell you, um, does not agree down the line on every single thing. No church wants its past one person. Um, I would suggest, too, that even if you're a husband-wife team, that you don't agree on everything down the line, or you haven't talked very much in a few years. Because human beings differ. The Bible's a big book with a lot of stuff in it. And we come at it from a lot of different places. We bring different baggage, different lenses, different experiences, and we're in growth ourselves. We're, We're in process ourselves. But this isn't just some standalone, you know, sort of hermetically sealed doctrinal unit on how to differ without dividing. It's in a context of a church, a real concrete context with racial and social and, you know, cultural 
the differences. And, and these issues they're disagreeing over are just symptomatic of larger things that Paul is addressing in the book of Romans. And so uh, what he said, I'll give you one example here. We're not going to get into that paragraph or that, that argument over diet and calendar issues. But here's one example. He says, this is just a concrete example in case you're not familiar with this text, in Romans 14, 2, an excerpt from that section, he says, one person in the church at Rome believes he may eat anything, like anything's okay, while the weak person, the person with, and weak in the context of Romans just means you've got more narrow scruples, you don't, you don't feel like you have as much legitimate latitude, more conservative, we might say, I don't like that word, but um, anyway, um, that, that's kind of what it's, the idea is. That person can only eat vegetables, so they believe something's wrong with eating meat. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. In fact, that word, zero in on the word, God has welcomed him, or you may say, you may have the word received him or accepted him or something like that. That, in fact, is the main idea of this whole section. If you go back to Romans 1, the very first verse of this section on meats and holy days and all that, it says this. Here it's on the screen. As for one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Now, if you're using the King James and I think the NIV, they'll say something like, accept him. Or receive him, one or the other. Most versions now say welcome him. Guess what? The end of this section isn't the last verse of Romans 14. It's Romans 15, verse 7. It spills over. Remember, we made up the chapter divisions. And in Romans 15, 7, you've got the same admonition. Therefore, based on all that stuff we've been saying, welcome one another as Christ. Christ welcomed you. You weren't all the same. You weren't cookie cutter perfect. You had all kinds of things you disagreed with Christ over. <laughs> You're a sinner. And he welcomed you. And his ex that's the example. Welcome each other. So that's really what this whole section is about, is welcoming one another. These are like two bookends uh, on, on the whole section. What are often called by Bible, Bible scholars, this is an, an inclusio. These two things sort of show you what the whole section's about. Welcome him on one end, welcome him on the other end. Welcome this person who's different from you. That's the point. But here's where we're going. I said all that to say this. This is all part of a larger issue, a larger uh, problem at the church at Rome that had to do with the relationship between Jew and Gentile. At least that is very likely the case here. And this is an issue that's very prominent in the book of Romans. If you go back to Romans chapter 1 through 3, the opening three chapters of the book, do you remember how it goes? After some introductory material, what Paul does is he says, that's, oh my goodness. Did we accept? Hmm, this is going to be a problem. We have to take a break on this because it's going to mess up a lot of several things. All right, so um, how have y'all been? What's going on, John? I'm not good at just making up stuff to kill time. Um, but I'll go ahead and, 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 I guess, explain here. So think of Romans 1 through 3. I'm not going to ask you. I, don't, I didn't have this on the screen anyway. But if you can think back, what he does in Romans 1 is to basically say, for the whole second half of the chapter, um, not there yet. Uh, that's good. That'll work. I, I can go from there. Perfect. Thanks. 
I'm just trying to get to a blank slide in here that should be black. There we go. Thanks, Daniel. So Romans 1, no, it's good. Romans 1 basically indicts all pagans, all Gentiles throughout history. They've refused to have God in their knowledge. They didn't have any excuse. The things that God made are evidence. They could see his, at least his divinity, his godhood, and his, 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 you know, his uh, power in, in just creation. So they're without excuse, and yet they all became to a person unrighteous. But then he turns to whom? In chapter 2 and 3, the Jews. And said, you had the law. You knew about adultery and all these horrible things, and yet you did them anyway. And the conclusion he draw, comes to in Romans chapter 3 is, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're all condemned. Jew or Gentile, having the law, not having had the law, you're all in the same bucket. And that's a bucket that's a long way from God's approval. And he says in Romans 1, in his definition of the gospel, Romans chapter 1, um, at verse 16, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to whom? Jew first and also to the Gentile. He doesn't just say to humans. He didn't have to say Jew first and then the Gentile. But that's kind of what he's dealing with at Rome. Uh, when you go to Romans chapter 9 through 11, it's a three chapter, a long section on the relationship between Jew and Gentile. And how God didn't just throw out what he said to Israel. And yet it was never just for Israel. It was always going to graft in, to use his metaphor, the Gentiles as well. So this book has a whole lot to do with the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And what, doesn't that make sense? I mean, look where they are. They're in Rome. This is the hub of the Gentile world. This is, this is the, the, there are lots of nations in the Mediterranean basin, you know, North Africa, Southern Europe, the Levant, Western Europe, you know, Spain. All of these places are under the domain of Rome. I remember we were in Rome on a trip, and I saw this sweatshirt and t-shirt all over the place. You could buy these, you know, the tourist thing. And it was Roma, I should have asked Janan first how you say that. It's Latin, Roma Caput Mundi. Is it Caput? Caput? Who cares? I'll just, all right then, if she's not going to care, I'm going to say Roma Caput Mundi. Just kidding. It, it means Rome is the capital of the world. Rome is the center of the world. And Rome was. This is the hub of the nations, of the Gentile world. And guess what's taking hold there? The Church of Jesus Christ. Well, we know that in AD 49, there was an edict from the Roman Emperor Claudius that evicted the Jews from Rome. And they stayed evicted pretty much until he died, like five years later or something. And, and this is kind of when the church at Rome is taking off. And with the Jews absent, the majority of the Roman church would have been Gentile early on. That means they're going to have Gentile leadership in all likelihood, Gentile background, Gentile culture, Gent, Gentile assumption. Uh, I mean, sorry, assumptions. And now as the Jews begin to return to Rome after Claudius dies, and this is referred to in Acts 18 too, actually. You can also read about it in Suetonius and people like that, but it's, it's, in the, it's actually in Luke's story of the early church in Acts. They begin to return, these, these Jews do, and they're now in the church. They're joining the church. Well, that sets it up for tension between Jew and Gentile because they've got different cultural background. They've got different expectations, different way of approaching the scriptures, perhaps, things like that. And so uh, this is not some disconnected thing, the paragraph that Greg read a minute ago that we're looking at today, from what goes on about can you, should you observe these days? That probably had to do with Jewish things, at least some, you know, take on that. Um, whether you can eat certain things, they had all kinds of dietary regulations, kosher laws, they had, uh, you know, 
a calendar that was religious with certain days you're supposed to do certain things and, and all, and all uh, like that. So here's what Michael J. Gorman says in a book commenting on this paragraph. On the surface, Romans 14.1 through 15.13 might look rather like an anticlimactic conclusion to the substance of the theologically powerful letter. You know, like I thought Romans was all about salvation by grace. It's just a theological treatise with no context. Well, it does talk a lot about salvation by grace, but it's in a context. It's occasioned by real people in real time. It's not just floating above the earth, right? He says, this is words about a problem or a potential problem concerning diet and calendar. Like, that seems a little random to be thrown into the end of, of, of uh, not worthy of the theological gravity of a gravitas of, 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 of a book like Romans. Here's what Gorman says. Nothing could be further from the truth, at least in Paul's mind. This section is the climax, he argues, the goal toward which the theme of Jew and Gentile has been incessantly driving. The word that matters utterly to Paul is hospitality, some versions say, or welcome. Welcome one another. They got a different view than you on what to eat or when you can do what and what you should observe in terms of the calendar. Welcome them anyway. Just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, Romans 15, 17. A community torn by intercultural strife subverts the gospel, as far as Paul is concerned. And he seeks to unify a fractured, inhospitable, multicultural community. The gospel's at stake. If everybody in the church are divided, if their cultural affinities and identities and what they're used to in terms of holy days or eating this or not eating that, or any number of other things we might come up with outside the two that are talked about there. Those things jeopardize the church. They jeopardize the gospel. And so in many ways, this is a theme that's been running all throughout Romans and comes to a head here. All right, well, what's the larger biblical context? How does this fit into the Bible as a whole? I want to turn to that now. So we're, we're sort of zooming out from just the you know, the confines of the book of Romans, and looking at the larger biblical story. Well, Israel, of course, the chosen people of God, to whom the, uh, the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, had been given. They called it just Scripture, because it was the Scriptures of their day. Israel had always struggled under the thumb of some oppressive pagan power. When in the Bible are they not struggling with a pagan power? I mean, when we meet them, Right? When we're introduced to them as readers of the Bible, Israel is basically a, a collection of slave laborers for another world, for a world power, Egypt, a pagan power. We meet them in the context of, of, of that. Um, then when they get in the promised land, they, you know, they, they're, they're led by God's power through the hand of Moses, through the Red Sea, wilderness wanderings. They come to the land promised to their, their fathers, the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of Canaan. Uh, what we would call Palestine and, you know, the, the Levant, Israel today. They've got people to, to deal with. They've got Canaanites and Moabites and Jebusites and all kinds of ites. I mean, the Bible's full of these ites, right? Philistines, Syrians, and so on. And then they're subjugated later. However well they do with these little minor powers around them, they're subjugated by world empires, a whole succession of them throughout much of their history. The Assyrian Empire. The Babylonian Empire, the empire emanating from Greece and Macedonia, then back to the east, the Medo-Persian Empire, and finally the Roman Empire. When have God's people not been 
surrounded by pagan power. That's not some exception. That's the rule in the Bible. And even though they come back to their homeland by the first century, for all intents and purposes, Israel still thinks of itself as in exile. That's what the Jews thought. And, and Daniel and uh, Sean and David have talked about this in the class on Acts. I have a quote here that sort of captures this idea from N.T. Wright's book, New Testament of the People of God. He says this about their mentality during uh, the first century. First century Jews believed that in all the senses which mattered, Israel's exile was still in progress. Although she had come back from Babylon, the glorious message of the prophets remained unfulfilled. All, all the talk about the restoration of Israel and all that. That didn't feel fulfilled if you're a first century Jew with a Roman soldier, you know, every 10 feet. Israel still remained in thrall, in bondage to foreigners. The little beleaguered nation looked out at the military might of Rome and the cultural power of Greece felt both of them making painful and lasting inroads into her national life, and longed for the day when her covenant God would act to reverse the present state of affairs and come himself to deliver her and dwell again in her midst. They're back home, but they're in exile. In every sense that really matters, conceptually. But the biblical prophets throughout their history, even when they're in captivity, even when they're being subjugated. Those biblical prophets are talking over and again about how not only will Israel not be overcome by such Gentile oppressors, but somehow will ultimately be a blessing to these pagan nations. That's what the prophets say. Not a couple of times, like over and over. If you've read the major and minor, you know this is a very, you, Isaiah, it's like redundant. It's so common. And so when's this going to happen? That's the promise. Israel, as Isaiah puts it in, in chapter 49, verse 6, will be a light for the nations. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? Isaiah 49, 6 says, and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you, Israel, a light for the nations or the Gentiles. I think the NIV puts it in several versions do. Um, because they thought of just the nations was all the nations but them. In fact, the New Testament word for that, the Greek word for this, is ethnoi, from which we get ethnic. So the ethnics, kind of everybody else but God's chosen people, Israel. But see what he says here? Israel was to be a light for the nations. It's not just hope for Israel that's promised, but hope through Israel for all the Gentile nations as well. And this makes sense since the whole story of the Bible begins with God calling the patriarch of the Hebrew people, a man by the name of Abram, later renamed Abraham, who would be the one through whom, or through whose seed, as Genesis 22:18 puts it, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The perspective was always everybody. Always. It never wasn't God caring about the whole world. But he picks a certain people through whom to work to effect uh, this transformation, this redemption that he promises all the nations of the world. And so all over the Hebrew Scriptures, all over your Old Testament, there are promises of blessings and hope to the Gentiles. You're reading the Hebrew Scriptures and you read about the nations coming back, the nations bringing their, their wealth to Jerusalem, the nations doing this and being blessed and being uh, you know, lifted up. The nations, the nations, the nations. It's all over the Jewish scriptures. 
Why is that? Well, it's because that's always been one of, a part of God's intention. And it's all over the text that Greg read for us a minute ago. Let's go back to it now. I've just got high. We're not going to read it again. But look at all the times the word Gentiles is used. Or depending on your version, maybe the nations. Either one of those is a fair translation. One, two, three, four, five, six times in a short span of text. The point Paul is making here, and, and I want you to know something else. These quotes that are given here uh, in verse 9 through verse 12 that prove biblically that God cared about the nations and that Christ was going to be for the Gentiles as well, these come from every part of the Hebrew Scriptures. You know, we've got our order. It starts in Genesis and it ends over in Malachi. In a Hebrew Bible, you have all the same stuff, but it's reordered, right? It's not the same order. So certain books will be in a different section and the order is different. And they refer to it as, and Jesus does that, in, in fact, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, as the law, the prophets, and the writings. Those are the three big designations. Well, all the quotes here come from, from all three sections. As if to say, all of your scripture has always been saying that. So we've got a quote from the law in Deuteronomy 32. We've got a quote from the prophets in Isaiah 11.10. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And then we've got a couple from Psalms, Psalm 18, Psalm 117. It's as if Paul is saying, folks, this has been the key point of the whole story, is that the Hebrew Messiah, the one we're waiting on, will take care of all the nations of the world. That's been the point. It's in, it's in the law, the prophets, and the writings. I want you to note especially now, the, the one from Isaiah 11, verse 10, the one in blue. Quoted here in, in Romans 15, verse 12. Again, Isaiah says, Paul writes, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles or the nations hope. Somebody called the root of Jesse is the one who's he's coming, and, and it's on him, or maybe it's a literal root from a plant. Probably not. That doesn't make much sense, and it's the root of Jesse. Maybe it's the root Jesse dug up. No. We know what it's talking about, and if you don't, you will in a second. What is this about? Let's talk about the root of Jesse. Well, Jesse signifies the throne of King David. Jesse, in the, back in Samuel, is the, the father of the boy David who becomes Israel's greatest king, at least in many ways. He becomes the paradigm of what the Jewish king should look like. The standard. And he, he rules over Israel in its glory days. But this Davidic dynasty this lineage of King David, along with Israel's glory days, those appear to be dead and gone by the time you get, you know, to Isaiah. In Isaiah, God's people are staring at invasion, the prospect of, of destruction of their homeland, of exile, of being dominated and ruled by pagan power yet again. That's the context. And yet Isaiah says that there is life yet in this root that appears dead, this stump 
of a dead you know, tree or something. It, it looks dead, but there's life yet. Isaiah, I'm going back now to the where it's quoted from in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and following. And it'll look a little different because it's a quote from the Greek version in, in Romans, from the Septuagint. So it's, it's not exact, but conceptually you can see it's the same thing. Here's what it says in Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It looks dead, but there's, you, you ever seen like something come back, you thought you killed it off with Roundup, and then next spring there's a little bit. It's always the poison oak that does that, not the stuff you, you would hope would live. Um, anyway, he's saying there's, there's still life there. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Verse 6, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf will, will be together. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, everything is the knowledge and glory of God everywhere. It's as thoroughly covered, uh, the earth is as thoroughly covered as, as, with that as the waters cover the sea. Right? The sea is water. And then he says in verse 10, here's the one that's quoted by Paul in Romans 15. In that day, when all this comes to pass, this root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations, or the Gentiles, inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Scripture identifies this root with Jesus. Jesus is that descendant of King David. If you go over to Acts 13, which we're not going to do, in Paul's sermon at Antioch in, in Turkey, he, he says as much. He says that that was talking about Jesus. He's the, the, the root from Jesse. He's the Davidic king. And this king whose reign would usher in universal peace and justice and righteousness would come as... Uh, would, would, would preside over a transformed world. It's not just that nations are going to be okay. Look at the description here in verses 6 and 9. I, there's others. I just got a couple excerpts. Does that sound like anything you've ever experienced? What happens when somebody finds that a little baby wolf is, is playing with a little lamb? It's, it's a story, right? It's blowing up. There's shows about that. Unlikely animal. Unlikely is the point. That, all, that doesn't happen. In nature. You've got to put them in some place where they would unnaturally grow up together. And some of them still turn on and eat the other one later. <laughs> this is a different kind of, of, of world. Wolves lying down with lambs. Leopards with, with kid goats. Calves and lions. Predator prey. It doesn't even work that way. It's a whole new order, a whole new economy of things. There will be no hurting or destroying in God's holy mountain. You know why? Because the earth will finally be full of the knowledge of the Lord and death and destruction and hardship and suffering and injustice. All of that is gone. This is a cosmic transformation. He's not just talking about helping some nations. So that's a big part of it. The whole world is being transformed. And Isaiah is chock full of this kind of language, which in Revelation 21 and 22 is going to, of course, pick up and say, this is, this is the culmination of all that. But one other thing I want you to notice. If we back up a little bit in Isaiah uh, to, to chapter 9, we see a really interesting and unlikely thing from a human perspective. This king, whose reign is going to usher in all of this universal peace and justice and righteousness and shalom, wholeness, 
That king is going to come as an humble child. Isaiah 9, same context, it's the same point he's being made. This is one, one big string of ideas. It's not, again, the chapter numbers, don't ignore, just ignore that. This is what Isaiah 9 is talking about. What we read about in Isaiah 11, the root of Jesse. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon this little boy's, this baby's shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of His peace, His shalom, there will be no end. Where will He reign? On the throne of David and over His kingdom. And He will do so with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's a new thing under the sun. And it's happening. It's being signaled by the birth of a child, a baby. That's the root of Jesse. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, and that's the only thing that will ever do anything like that. So, while God would fulfill the promises to care for Israel, those promises always also included God's care for all of the Gentile nations. The other people made in His image. If they would turn to Him, and that's what Romans 15, 8 is talking about here. Right after saying, welcome people who have differences with you, mixed church of Jew and Gentile with all your cultural background and everybody thinking their way is just the truth and why can't anybody else see it? You need to welcome each other because guess what? In God's eternal plan, He was always going to call in Gentiles to be with Jews. He says here in verse 8 of Romans 15, the very next verse, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jews, to show God's truthfulness, or you may have faithfulness. He's faithful to His promises. In order to confirm the promises given to the Hebrew patriarchs, but what else? Verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles, the nations, might glorify God for His mercy. And that's what Christ coming into the world is supposed to accomplish. All right. We've got negative one minutes. Not really. Some of you think that. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'll go as fast as I can. I want to I just quickly talk about takeaways. Like, kind of so what? What does all that mean? What about our context, where you and I live? When you and I live? I want to talk about just two, con uh, two takeaways here. And the first one is this. That hope has a face. Hope has a face. Hope is a person. And that person is Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of Israel. And we have to think hard and long about whether we really believe that. Because if we don't, we're going to place our hope on something else. And that something else is not solid. It will let us down. Just like Israel, just like the nations, we cannot rely on anything except the Messiah of Israel. Our hope doesn't lie in grasping after political power. There's a whole lot of people right now in our culture telling us that's the ticket. I don't know what to say other than just, just watch. I've studied history a little bit. 
uh, you don't have to study history a little bit to know that these things wax and wane and come and go. That's not the ticket. Hope doesn't lie in technology. Hope doesn't lie in your financial health or your physical health. Get as fit as you want. About 10 minutes. We're all going to be at death's door. <laughs> I hate to be Debbie Downer again, but I mean, come on. We're going to die. So, you know, you're arguing over like milliseconds from the perspective of eternity. I'm not saying don't be healthy and don't be financially and don't get the latest technology. Don't vote your conscience. But those are not our ultimate hope. They will let us down. Neither does our hope lie in religion in the conventional sense. In the realm of religion, quote-unquote, hope is not based ultimately on a set of doctrinal propositions that we've extrapolated from Scripture and said that's the essence. Good thing we've got all those and those other folks don't. No, hope does not lie in propositions. Hope lies in a person. We don't know the way, Thomas said to Jesus. What was Jesus' response? I am the way. He doesn't say, let me give you seven rules or five acts of worship or three this or 27 that. He said, I am the way. Paul preached Christ and him crucified. Hope is a person. He's got a face, and it's the face of Jesus. And hope is not about bootstraps. It's not about, it's something God makes possible for us in Christ, not something ultimately that we do. That's what all the language in all three of these texts in Romans suggests. Look at Romans 15, 13, the one from which we're taking the whole series title. May the God of hope, may he fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Your job's to trust, to believe, and your life ought to follow suit so that the power of the Holy Spirit may help you abound in hope. This is something God does for us. And guess what? We don't have time for this one, but in all three of these texts, Romans 4 and 5, Romans 8, and Romans 15, where it's talking about hope and trusting in the promises of God, in all three of those, we're told that we're given the promise of the Spirit. God gives us a piece of Himself to convince us continually that His promises are truth. It's God who's doing this, ultimately. We've got to respond the right way. But you're not going to bootstrap your way into having a solid hope. Guarantee you. Abraham in Romans 4, 18 to 20, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. What's his role? What's he doing? He's believing. He's trusting. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew in his faith as he gave glory to God, as he um, ascribed substance and weightiness to God, not to financial things or health things or whether this makes rational sense or doesn't. None of it made rational sense, what God was promising Abraham. But his faith and hope increased as he ascribed glory, substance, the ultimate reality to God. And there's this hope-glory connection in all three of our texts that we've been looking at in these ser this series. Hope comes from us getting the glory of God. Because if you see God for who He is, you're going to believe what He says. Look at Romans 8. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, verse 20, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, in confident expectation, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay or corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's waiting on our more glorious, more real redemption bodies. Whatever that means. 
Hope and glory go together. And Jesus is also the hope of the nations. He's the hope, whether they know it or not, of the Gentiles, as it were. When he fulfilled Old Testament promises, he not only showed God's faithfulness to Israel, but also enabled the Gentiles to hope in him and to glorify God for this mercy. In order, Romans 15, 9 says that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then look at verse 12. In Jesus, the Gentiles hope. Glory, hope. Hope, glory. They go together. So that's one takeaway. That hope has a face. It's not some disembodied abstraction. Not some set of doctrines or rules. It's certainly not something else that we might do. It is Jesus. The incarnation of God. When you saw Jesus, you saw the Father, he said. But there's something else. Hoping in Jesus means living for Jesus. And this means, and I'm going to apply this now back to the context. It means many things. It means everything the Bible says. But I'm going to apply it to the one that's mentioned in Romans. Because I think that's a big one. And it's something that our world is desperately in need of. And that is a readiness to welcome. Hmm? Are you ready to welcome people who don't look like you? Biba, we need to work on that. Biba is, actually. I know him better than that. I know his parents and what they teach. People who make you uncomfortable. You, You know, you make people uncomfortable, too. Anybody realize that? You're normal if somebody else is strange. That's the whole point of Romans 14 and 15. Well, this is just obvious. Well, other people are saying that's obvious. What, just split? That's been the kind of MO for a couple centuries and more. See that in the Bible? No, actually, that's, we're warned against that in, in, in very uh, frightening terms. Can you welcome people? Can we come to see difference? as something to be bridged by the cross, not kept at a distance. Just isolate me in my bubble. Build a barrier around me. That's not from Jesus. It's not what Romans is talking about. That's not why he calls upon, invokes this litany of passages about God reaching out to the Gentiles. What's the meaning of coming of the coming of the root of Jesse. What does that mean for us practically? What is the meaning of the coming of the world's true king into this world? Well, folks, the answer must, there's a lot of answers, but it must begin with respecting the context in which it appears. In Romans 14, 3 through 15, 7, welcome him. Welcome one another, even when you don't agree. Even when your background, your culture, your social class, your history, your experience has led you to think this is just the way it is. Somebody else in your church family saying, well, my background, my experience, my culture, my race, my ethnicity, my, back, my history, it sees this is the way. Welcome each other. The kingdom of heaven isn't eating and drinking. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul does an end run around all that. Yeah, we got to work and study. 
We're working on the edges, not in the core, when we do that. And so we've got to start there. Not just Jew-Gentile. Not just the question of special days on a calendar or whether you can eat meat. But all the other things that that represents. All the cultural differences that have divided people throughout the ages. Growing out of any difference in race or nation or ethnicity or background or experience. You're from the south, I'm from the north, blah, 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 blah. You think that's new? I mean, Christianity was always for everybody. And from Constantine and, you know, uh, Augustine a century later forward, for Christianity not to be held captive by some culture or some nation has been the exception. Even in a place where you have separation of church and state, different people are trying to co-opt and say Christianity means this political agenda. No, it means that political agenda. Welcome one another. What if our church was different from the culture wars waging around us? And we were like, you know what? We're doing an end run around that. We're into the cross of Christ. Are you interested? Come along. We've got a lot to figure out, but let's figure it out together, arm in arm. What if we could be a beacon like that in our community? Wouldn't that be special? Jesus brings peace and unity and selfless love among otherwise at-odds people groups. And as Christ's followers, we're supposed to reflect Him. They should see His face in all of our faces. As broken as we are, our faces can be ugly sometimes because we do all kinds of stuff we shouldn't. They can be dirty and messed up. But what if the, the face of Christ was shining through that and people saw that? We may not be able to change the whole world, but we can at least effect that kind of change within our own church and in the signals we send to those around us in our community. And that's what the coming of the root of Jesse means. And that's, not why, that's why it's not some arcane discussion about, did it happen then? Does it have pagan or... That, you want to camp out on that? It's about the point of the Bible. God came near. And he promises us all these things and asks us to live faithfully to them. Amen? Let's do that. It's, a, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. It's the most magnetic thing in the world. And it gives us, and it alone gives us, hope, a confident expectation, expectation as we glorify God and worship Him for who He is and see Him in all of His substance and, and grandeur and splendor and, and reality and weight. We won't be able to do otherwise. So in the new year, as I'm going to talk about next week as we launch a new theme, we're going to talk more and more about trying to grasp who God is and how everything grows out of that. Thanks for your attention today. Quitting uh, in the morning. Just barely. If we can help you in some way. Uh, prayers, Bible studies, anybody need to be baptized into Christ to become a, a servant of His, a child of His, whatever we can do for you, let us know by coming to one of these chairs in the middle. While together we stand and sing.